This Parsha podcast is dedicated by Michael and Lana Kutsaya in loving memory of Michael's mother, Tamila Bat Moshe, who passed away a few weeks ago. She was a remarkable woman. She had an indomitable spirit, and she will be sorely missed. May her soul be elevated in heaven. Well, it's the first Parsha podcast of the year, 5783. I hope y'all had an incredible, meaningful, uplifting, and powerful Rosh Hashanah. And of course, Rosh Hashanah is our new year. And it's a good idea to make a New Year's resolution to be better in the upcoming year. And the best sort of New Year's resolution for Rosh Hashanah is to study more Torah. And in that spirit, I want to plug one of my podcasts called Torah 101. This is a podcast that I started many years ago. We just recorded and released episode number 62. And I have a little regret about the title of the show because Torah 101 sounds very basic. It sounds rudimentary. Oh, I got it. You know, Torah 101. He's going to tell me all the basics, the ABCs that I already know. But it's really not that. It is a rigorous and comprehensive study and explication and analysis of the fundamental tenets of our faith and our religion. You know, this episode number 62 that we just released, it's the 13th episode on principle number 11 of the 13 principles of faith. Maimonides codified our faith. He said that you have to have 13 principles. There are 13 principles that undergird all of our religion. And we're going through it in a very uh, deep and, and systematic and methodical way. So we've done now 11 episodes, excuse me, we've done 13 episodes on principle number 11. This principle tells of reward and punishment. If you do a mitzvah, if you listen to God, you'll get rewarded. If you violate the will of God, you'll get punished. That's the principle number 11 of the 13 principles. And we've studied it from all angles And we've talked about the various kinds of reward in this world and in the afterlife and the various different venues of the afterlife, paradise and purgatory and what exactly happens after you die. What about reincarnation? What is it like to experience paradise? And we go through all the sources and kind of really lay it out in a nice, neat way. I always think that, you know, this podcast, it would be very beneficial for people that actually have a strong background in Jewish learning, someone who went to yeshiva. So they, of course, have the great privilege of knowing how to study Talmud and having familiarity with Hebrew. But these subjects are largely not taught in yeshiva. And I feel like this podcast would help fill in a lot of the gaps in knowledge about the fundamental elements of our religion and our faith. And of course, I'm very biased. You know that. But I highly recommend it. If you have yet to listen to it, try it. Sample it. It's called Torah 101. It's available wherever you listen to this podcast. Okay, so Parshas Vayelach is the shortest Parsha in the Torah. It's the third to last Parsha in the Torah, and thus it is the third to last or anti-penultimate Parsha podcast. Please get out of this cycle. The Parsha contains a mere 30 verses. Most years... It's bunched together with last week's Parsha, with Parsha's Nitzavim. 
This year, it is a standalone. Next year, please, God, or this upcoming year, it's actually going to be bunched together with Nitzavim. But I feel like it's a good parsha for a short week. You know, Sunday was the day before Rosh Hashanah, was Erev Rosh Hashanah. Monday, Tuesday was Rosh Hashanah. Wednesday was the fast of Gedalia. Now it's Thursday. It's a short week. Maybe it's a good idea to have a short parsha in a short week. And the entire subject matter of our parsha are the events of the final day of Moshe's life. It's a quick jaunt through the last day of Moshe's life. It's his birthday. Moshe, like many of the great luminaries of our history, passed away on his birthday. And that is symbolic of him living a complete life, a full life, of him maximizing and completely actualizing all the opportunity, all the potential that he had at his life's onset. On this day he was born. On this day, he will pass at the age of 120. 120 is also symbolic of completeness, of perfection. As they just tell us that there are 70 facets to the Torah. And there are 50 gates of wisdom. And he put 70 with 50. That equals 120. That symbolizes almost the totality of the potential human experience in this world. The greatest human of all time is Moshe. And it is no coincidence that he's going to pass away after completing this 120-stage journey. And a parsha begins with Moshe traveling. Vayelach Moshe. Moshe is going. Where is he going? I was trying to figure out because the Torah, the scripture, doesn't mention exactly where his destination is. Various commentators offer their interpretation. But really, he's going to take leave of the people. Although Rashi tells us he's at the peak of his powers, he hasn't lost a step. He hasn't lost a few miles per hour on his fastball. He is still at his peak performance, at the peak of his powers, razor sharp. Nevertheless, God is removing him from power, transferring the mantle of leadership to Joshua, his disciple and successor, Moshe is leaving the stage and he's going to the people to say goodbye, to sign off and to encourage them. Don't worry, I'm leaving. But really it was not me who was doing all the activities at the helm of the nation. It was really God. And he will still be there with you. And just like we overcame our foes, our enemies on the east bank of the Jordan, God will be with you, even though I won't be. God will be with you on the West Bank of the Jordan and you will defeat your foes. And Joshua, he's going to be an able leader. And Moshe formally signals to the people that Joshua is his replacement. He made sure that everyone sees in Moshe's lifetime how Joshua was his designated successor. You don't want to have a questionable succession plan. Moshe writes down 13 copies of the Torah, gives one to every tribe. One goes in the ark or near the ark. And then we have the penultimate mitzvah of the Torah, the mitzvah of Hakel, the mitzvah to gather the entire nation every seven years at the conclusion of the Shemitah year. So that would be like right now. We just finished the Shemitah year. And there's a mitzvah at the conclusion of the Shemitah year during the festival of Sukkot to have a national reading of the Torah 
in the temple done by the king. The king reads the majority of Deuteronomy to the whole nation, to men, women, and children. This is the 612th mitzvah in the Torah. And we have the formal transfer of power. God summons Moshe and Joshua together. And Moshe and Joshua get together and they stand in the tent of meeting. And the Talmud tells us that this is a very significant moment in this transfer of power because this Shabbos, the day that Moshe passed, was a Shabbos. This Shabbos, it was a Shabbos that the nation had two heads. It was like the moment of of the passing of the baton when the baton was in the hands of both Joshua and Moses. When we started Shabbos, it was just Moses. When we ended, it was just Joshua. In the middle, in the interim, was that transference. And God appears and speaks to Moshe, and he tells him about the future events of our nation's history. The nation will sin, they'll deviate away from God, they'll turn away from me, and I will turn away from them. Of course, this is a theme that we've seen, of course, many times throughout Deuteronomy. And of course, it has been played out many times throughout our nation's history. And then God commands Moshe and Joshua to write the song of Ha'azinu, which is going to be next week's parsha. write it together. So typically, up to this point, Moshe has been the point man. When God wants something done, he speaks to Moshe alone. It's very rare in the Torah for God to convey something to anyone aside from Moshe. But now, for the writing of this song, which is the very last thing that happens before Moshe passes, one of the last things that happens, it's going to be done, or the instruction comes from God to Moshe and Joshua together. And then God speaks to Joshua himself. And God encourages him. And God strengthens him. And the Midrash actually tells us something really interesting. It says that Moshe was curious after God spoke to Joshua. Moshe was curious because he didn't know. He wasn't privy to that. And he comes to Joshua and says, well, well, what did God tell you? And Joshua says, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. It's classified. It's, you can't, you can't know. Which is, again, symbolic of this transfer. Moshe was the leader, and now Joshua is becoming the leader. And the parsha ends with Moshe giving the written Torah scrolls to the Levites, and he gathers the nation to tell them the song of Hazina, which is going to be next week's parsha, the grand song of Jewish life and Jewish history. So that's the parsha. It's kind of the unwinding of the tenure of Moshe. It's the last day of his life. It's the day to transfer the authority to Joshua. Moshe is still operating on the highest level. His aptitude, his sharpness have not been diminished a bit. Yet he must give up power. Is to go to the people. His summoning trumpets, Rashi tells us, were archived on this day. Previously, if you wanted to gather the people, he had these special silver trumpets that were created in the book of Numbers, of Parshas Baaloscha. And if he wanted to summon the people, there was a series of blasts that he would do, and everyone would, everyone would come. 
Now, if he wants to gather the people, he has to do it manually. He has to forfeit some of the accoutrements of power. Rashi tells us that the wellsprings of wisdom that Moshe always had are closing up. Joshua's formally recognized. God has a standalone prophecy with Joshua. And the task of writing the song of Ha'azina was done jointly by Moshe and Joshua. So our parsha is the story of the waning of Moshe's power or his grip on power and his standing as the former leader of the people diminishing, going away, and there's the passing of the baton to Joshua. Now, over the course of Rosh Hashanah, I had an observation that I want to share with you today in this maiden episode of the new year, 5783. So the second day of Rosh Hashanah, I was honored to receive the first aliyah of the Torah, of the ring of the Torah, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, typically, the first aliyah would go to the Kohen. It happened that there was not a Kohen in our minion, so they gave it to me, the standard-issue Israelite. And something struck me from the reading of the Torah that connected to our Parsha, and you know, if you have to record a new Parsha podcast every week, you're really never off. That's not something you take time off from. You're always really preparing. So something we read in Rosh Hashanah reminded me of something from our Parsha. And I want to share the observation with you. So, of course, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, we read about the binding of Isaac from Genesis chapter 22. Now we're in... Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 31, it's a long way away from Genesis. But I noticed a parallel that I found noteworthy. The binding of Isaac, that's the tenth of Abraham's ten tests. Abraham was tested. And our tell us that he was tested ten times over the course of his time of over the course of his lifetime. And the final test, the pinnacle test of Abraham's life was the binding of Isaac episode. He's told to take his son, his only son, the one that he cherishes, bring him to Mount Moriah, offer him as a sacrifice for God. And of course, Abraham does that. He wakes up early and he saddles his own donkey and they travel for three days and he goes up the mountain and he's ready to do it. And at the very last second, in the 90th minute, he stopped, don't touch him, don't even make a small wound. And they find the ram as the replacement. We know the story. But that's really the end of Abraham's narrative in the Torah. This is really the last episode, effectively, of Abraham's life as recorded in the Torah. Of course, it doesn't coincide with his passing. Afterwards, you know, he does learn about the birth of Rebecca, and he secures a burial spot for Sarah, and he buries her. And he sends Eliezer to find a spouse for Isaac, and he bears children with Hagar. But those children, of course, are not significant to the Abrahamic mission. They are banished. So some events happen between the binding of Isaac and Abraham's passing, 
But this is really the last event of Abraham's narrative in the Torah, where he's the central figure, and this orients or this relates to the Abrahamic mission. Effectively, the binding of Isaac is the end of Abraham's storyline. And we read it every Rosh Hashanah. And how does it start? It starts with God testing Abraham. Vayomer love Avraham, and he says to him, Abraham, Vayomer Hineni, here I am. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love. Take Isaac, Vilech Lechal Eretz Hamoriah, and go for yourself, the land of Moriah, and offer him as an elevation offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Go for yourself, Lech Lecha, to this mountain to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. It's interesting that at the end of Abraham's journey, it uses the identical verbiage that is featured in the beginning of Abraham's journey. In Genesis chapter 12, we read, God tells Abraham, who was then called Abram, Lech Lecha, go for yourself, from your land, from your homeland, from the house of your father, go to the land that I will show you. And there I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name known. It'll be a blessing. That was the first of Abraham's tests. He's told to go to the unknown. And isn't it interesting and noteworthy that both the beginning of Abraham's journey, the first of his ten tests, and its end, they are preceded with the identical words, lech lecha, go for yourself. Now, how long separates the two lech lechas? So scripture doesn't tell us, but our sages do, and they tell us that when Abraham initially left from Haran to go to Canaan, the first lech lecha, he was aged 75. At the Binding of Isaac episode, we are told he was 137. Thus, there is a 62-year gap between the first and the last Lech Lecha. 62 years after Abraham begins his journey with the first of his ten tests, with the first Lech Lecha, his journey reaches its climactic capstone with the tenth of the tests, the binding of Isaac. And again, it starts with Lech Lecha. Now, what does this have to do with our Parsha? Our Parsha is the end of Moshe's career, of Moshe's life. It's the last day of his life. This is the capstone of his journey. And we see the same pattern that we observe in Abraham's journey. Moshe's career as leader of the Jews. Well, that began with the episode of the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 and 4. God appeared to him and he commissioned him to go extract the Jews from Egypt, go negotiate their release from Pharaoh. And of course, Moshe doesn't sign on to the job right away. He has extensive objections to this plan. They won't believe me. Pharaoh won't believe me. How could I do it? I have a speech impediment. With which name of God should I say appear to me? Shlach Nabiatishlach send Aaron instead. But when Moshe finally acceded to go, 
when he finally commenced what would end up being a 41-year journey at the helm of the nation, the verse says, Vayelech Moshe. Moshe went. And if you read the verse, this is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. The words, Vayelech Moshe, really seem to be a bit out of place. They seem to be a bit superfluous. Because then it says right afterwards, Vayashav el Yeser Chosano, and he returned to Yeser, his father-in-law, to Jethro, his father-in-law. The verse could have easily said that Moshe returned to his father-in-law. Why does it say Vayelach Moshe? And Moshe went. Now in our parsha, it's 41 years later. How does our parsha begin? How does the parsha where Moshe is hanging up his cleats, how does it start? Vayelech Moshe. Moshe went. And again, in the verse in our parsha, those two words can be superfluous. All the commentators are trying to figure out where did Moshe go? Because the verse continues, Yisrael. The verse doesn't tell us where Moshe went, but it does tell us that he spoke these words to all of Israel. Thus, the verse could have said, Moshe spoke all these words to all of Israel. The fact that Moshe went someplace, Vayelech Moshe, and it doesn't tell us where he went, but he uses the identical words as the inception, as the beginning, as the commencement of Moshe's journey. To me, that's a bit noteworthy. Now, it is interesting that a little bit later on in verse 12 of chapter 31, it once again uses that term, Vayelech Moshe. But I don't remember anywhere else in the Torah, aside from the very beginning of Moshe's tenure, and the very end, the last day of his journey, I don't find, or I can't remember, the Parsha podcast fact checkers are on it. But I don't remember anywhere else in the Torah where this formulation is found, Vayelech Moshe. But it does show up at the very beginning of Moshe's journey and at its conclusion. At the inception, at the capstone of Moshe's tenure as leader of the people, we have identical words marking the bookends of his journey. This is what went through my head on Rosh Hashanah during my Aliyah. The two greatest personalities of the Torah, the two greatest people who have ever lived, these two titanic exemplars, Moshe and Abraham, both of them have extensive treatment and narrative arcs in the Torah, and both of them are bookended with the identical words, Abraham, it's lech lecha to lech lecha, 62 years and nine tests later. And it's Moshe, Vayelech Moshe to Vayelech Moshe, 41 years and innumerable exploits and events later. So what does that do with such an observation? So I think the first, the first takeaway should be just to recognize that something important is being conveyed here. When we see Abraham and Moshe, these are the absolute greatest of all time, the goats. When we see their journeys, their storylines, parallel each other, I think it's 
it's a sign that there's a lesson for how the ideal story, the ideal life, the ideal mission, the ideal journey ought to look like. And I think that the first thing that we can glean from it is that they stuck to their mission, their journey, with assiduous consistency and diligence. If you think about it, you know, they both started off their journey when they were relatively unknown. You know, at Abraham's beginning, the first Lech Lecha, he was with his family in Haran. He was childless. He was penniless. He didn't have much distinction. And at 75 years of age, God says, Lech Lecha. And Abraham goes. When God said Lech Lecha a second time, 62 years later, a lot has changed. Abraham had gained tremendous status and distinction. He had really single-handedly won a world war, the war of the five kings against the four kings. You remember that. He had spearheaded a movement that now numbered in the myriads of followers. He was tremendously wealthy. He was making peace deals with kings. He was a man of international renown and distinction. And you would think that, you know, over the course of these decades, Abraham would lose sight of the goal. He would lose sight of the mission. He would get a bit distracted. The success maybe would get to him. Yet the Torah tells us that there's a certain consistency, a certain continuity in Abraham's journey. It started with Lachlacha. It concluded with Lachlacha. It was one continuous journey. Abraham didn't change. Abraham begins his journey, the journey to found a dynasty, to found a nation, to found an ideal that will represent God in the world, to found a nation that will endure for eternity, a nation that will be God's people, God's representatives in this world. And after making tremendous inroads, 62 years later, he is still being told Lech Lecha. His determination, his focus is still on target, unchanged, 62 years later. Moshe had a similarly meteoric rise. When the first Vayelech Moshe is featured in the Torah, Moshe was 79 years old. He's living in Midian. He had to escape from Egypt when he was charged with murder of the Egyptian man. And he had fled Egypt 60 years earlier. The Jews in Egypt presumably would have long forgotten about Amram and Yocheved's other son, Aaron's younger brother, who was raised in Pharaoh's palace and had to flee on murder charges. Moshe was a nobody. He was a, a shepherd, shepherding his father-in-law's flock. For the nation, he was, again, a nobody. He was maybe a scion of this noble family. But he had left the scene decades prior. 
Vayelech Moshe, and Moshe went. And now it's 41 years later. He spent a year in Egypt, and he had done all these incredible miracles, 10 plagues, dominating the Egyptians. And after they left, of course, there's the manna, and the splitting of the sea, and the revelation at Sinai, and the 40 days and 40 nights with no food or water, times three. And Moshe is the undisputed king of the Jews. And over the course of these 40 years in the wilderness, he has to deal with mutineers, insurrectionists, and rebels, Korach and his retinue, and uh, Dustin and Aviram, Dathan and Abiram, and the spies. But now it's at the end of the journey, and he's still at the peak of his powers. But the Torah can use the exact same words to describe his journey, the same Vayelech Moshe, the same commitment, the same determination, the same humility, like Abraham. His success has not gone to his head. His many decades at this mission and his tremendous achievements have not altered his focus. There's something really remarkable to still be on that same path, on that same trajectory after decades. So I think the first takeaway from the overlap, from the parallel between Moshe and Abraham's journey is that perhaps a capstone for a life well-lived, a mission well-done, is the ability to stay on the same path, to remain with the same goals, the same focus, to be, to be the same person, to have the same perspective, and to stick to it day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. And we remember, perhaps, that Joseph is also similarly praised. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, the verse tells us that all the descendants of Jacob were 70, the ones who descended to Egypt. And then the verse adds, V'yosef haya b'mitzrayim, and Joseph was in Egypt. And Rashi asked the question, well, of course we know that Joseph was in Egypt, what is it adding? And Rashi explains that this reveals the righteousness of Joseph. Joseph had had a long story arc, and he was the same Joseph. He was the same Joseph who was the shepherd for his father. He was the same Joseph who went down to Egypt, stranded, abandoned, sold, enslaved. He's the same Joseph who became king and he still remained in his piety. Joseph, his storyline, his character arc is a model of consistency like Abraham, like Moshe. Joseph maintained the same identity and the same standing and the same qualities from beginning to end. I was thinking that in the episode of the binding of Isaac, Rashi makes a stunning comment. The verse says that God tells Abraham, please 
take your son, your favorite son, your only son, etc. Take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. So Rashi says, why does God say please? Why is God pleading with Abraham? And Rashi explains, based upon the Talmud, please succeed in this mission, in this test. Because if you fail, then we're calling to question the successes of the past. People would say, if you fail this one, the first ones are unsubstantial. And the question is, of course, wait a minute. If you succeed in nine tests and you fail in the last one, why would the failure at the end, why would that call into question the earlier tests that Abraham was successful in? Why would it negate the previous successes? But I think if we understand now what Abraham's life was like, it wasn't just a series of, you know, isolated events, a series of isolated, disjointed tests, a series of independent, discrete episodes. Abraham's life was one continuous mission that took decades. And this capstone, this final event of Abraham's life, this is the end of the mission. But if it's one mission, then it could either be a success or a failure. And therefore, if you fail at the end, that's really going to call into question all those successes because now those successes are still successes, but it's not part of a lifetime mission. It's not a capstone. It's not one continuous mission that succeeded. It's a success. It's a positive. But that's not a lifetime lived with one focus and one mission. When we look at Moshe's life, we see similar dedication and similar focus and similar consistency. At the beginning, he began by Yelich Moshe. And now, 41 years later, he's ending it off. He's capping it with the same Vayelech Moshe. I think this, this shows us maybe a different way to look at life. Of course, we know that we're here to do something. We're here on a mission. Here we see an example of a mission that becomes a life calling. It becomes the focus of your life. This is what you're here to do. And if you realize that, if you realize that there's something that the Almighty expects of you, that He wants of you, and you're the only one who could do it, no one else can do what you were sent to do. If you really recognize that, that can engender a different kind of life. That can create a focus on a mission that you never lose sight of. And you can really dedicate your life to that. And you begin to live in this high level of living with a mission and a purpose and a calling. 
If you realize that the Almighty created you for a certain reason, once you discover that, you can now dedicate your life towards that. And you can be on that mission until the end. If the Almighty wants you to retire, he's going to have to do it himself. We're here to work. We can retire in the afterlife. Until those reins, until the cleats are taken away from us, we're on the mission. Maybe it takes 40 years. Maybe it takes 60 years. Maybe more. Maybe less. But what we see here is a different type of life. A life with a focus, with a tenacious and unyielding focus for a specific mission. Now, the mission of Moshe was done. The mission of Abraham was done. But your mission, if you're still around, if you're listening to me, it's obviously not done. Because if it was done, you wouldn't need to be here. We have a description of a different kind of life. A life of this continuous journey with a steely focus on yielding, on bending, on moving, unflinching from the mission. And perhaps we can speculate another point. Perhaps there's another parallel between the storylines of Abraham and Moshe. A similar thing happened to both of these icons at the end of their journey. They were both asked to forfeit something. To forfeit really all that they have worked on for so long. Abraham was told, sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's legacy. He was Abraham's continuity. He was the heir. He was designated to perpetuate the Abrahamic legacy to the next generation. And Abraham was instructed to kill him. And that would result in a complete destruction of all those decades of Abraham's work. He would be engaging in child sacrifice like all those idolaters that he had railed against for so many decades. Abraham would be finished. His reputation would be shattered. His only son and successor would be dead. His life's mission would be destroyed. That's what Abram was asked to do at the end of his life. And I think to a certain extent, that's really what Moshe was asked to do in our Parsha. He had honorably and faithfully led the nation. He remained unchallenged as the nation's leader. All those rebels that we talked about, the complainers, Korach, the spies, they're all gone. And Moshe hasn't lost his step. At 120, he's still completely competent and capable. And there's really nothing that should prevent him from continuing to lead the people. Yet he's asked to step aside and to give the nation to Joshua. He's asked to forfeit all that he's built. I think we can speculate that such a mission, this mission that encompasses a lifetime, that spans a whole life, it's not really shaped like a bell. 
It's not a bell curve. It's a singular ascendant trajectory that reaches a climactic crescendo of total commitment, of total dedication to God and to the cause at the very end of the journey. I think this whole idea is an interesting thing to chew on during this critical time in the year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Of course, this is the time that we are encouraged to do some self-introspection, to figure out what it is that we're trying to do with our lives, to try to zoom out and see the big picture of what it is that we're here for. And in Rosh Hashanah, of course, we're supposed to find God and coronate God. I was supposed to say that I'm here for God and God has something for me to do that I need to figure out how I can play a role in the coronation of God. And I think in Abraham and Moshe, we see a kind of life commitment to a journey that's really unique amongst the annals of human history. We see a single-minded determination spanning decades with the utmost commitment, staving off challenges, triumphing in tests year after year, decade after decade. Such is the ideal life from inception to capstone. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. The anti-penultimate exquisite insight of this sixth year of the Parsha podcast. This idea is courtesy of Rabbi Moshe Wolfson. I saw it in an email that I received from him or his organization. There are two questions. Our Parsha starts off and Moshe is going to speak to the people. Why is Moshe going to speak to the people? Shouldn't the people come to Moshe and he would speak to them when they come to him? Question number one. Question number two, Rashi tells us that the wellsprings of wisdom were close to him. Why did Moshe lose access to these wellsprings of wisdom? So, of course, Ramban tells us that this would help make his departure easier. It... It's very painful to leave when you are at your peak of your powers. But in order to make it easier to pass on the leadership to Joshua, the Almighty miraculously withheld wisdom from, from Moshe. And that made it more palatable for Moshe to made it easier for him to succeed in the test of handing over the power to Joshua. But it's still a question uh, to ponder why did Moshe lose his wellsprings of wisdom. So he suggested, Rabbi Wolfson, a brilliant answer. On the last day of Moshe's life, Moshe wrote down the Torah, really 13 copies of the Torah. And previously, of course, the Torah was recorded, was written down piece by piece, but it wasn't unified into one Torah scroll. And Moshe wrote 13 Torah scrolls, one for every tribe, and one to be kept in the temple coffers. Now we know that every letter in the Torah corresponds to a soul among the people. 
You remember last year we did a memorable episode to explain how there are exactly 600,000 letters in the Torah. But every letter corresponds to one soul, one soul amongst the Jewish people. And some souls are very lofty, very powerful, are very elevated. And some souls are much weaker. They're like the souls of the latter generations. In order for Moshe to write those letters in the Torah, he wasn't just writing it like a scribeboard or like a like a printer would. He was connecting with it, with the Torah, on the most fundamental and essential levels. And if every letter in the Torah corresponds to a soul amongst the Jewish people, Moshe wanted to connect to those souls, and therefore he went to go speak to the people to connect to their souls in order to be able to write their corresponding letters in the Torah. Now, for Moshe to write every letter in the Torah, now we know why he has to go out and meet them, to to, to sense their soul, to, to understand their soul, to be able to really write down that letter in the Torah, the corresponding letter of the Torah, in a way where it's not just a superficial writing. But what would happen if there would be like this meeting of, not of the minds, but a meeting of the souls, where Moshe is connecting on the deepest level with all those other souls? Well, if the soul of Moshe, which was like the sun, was exposed to the soul of someone who was, every soul is special, of course, but a lower soul, that other soul would be just consumed and destroyed by the brilliance of Moshe's soul. Even Moshe physically, he had to wear a mask to avoid blinding the people. And now he's going to connect with his soul to the soul of all the other Jews. What's going to be? Those other souls are going to be incinerated by Moshe's soul. And therefore, they might be kind of tempered the power of Moshe's soul. Those wellsprings of wisdom were closed up, were concealed in order to make Moshe more approachable, to make the connection between Moshe's soul and the soul of all the other people, to make that more feasible. And that's why, for the benefit of being able to write, or for the, to enable the writing of the Torah on the fundamental level that Moshe wrote it, and the connection of Moshe's soul with all the other souls, that's why his wellsprings of wisdom were taken a notch down in order to facilitate this connection between Moshe and the 600,000 souls. This, of course, is a brilliant idea. But then he adds that that's really what happens to us during this time of year. During the 10 days of repentance, we're told that God is close to us. That means that God comes here. The king is in the field. The king is around us. The rest of the year, God is distant from us. But now God is close to us. He's going to come to us and he's going to make himself accessible to us, so to speak, because he is trying to beckon us to repent. God will do whatever he can, whatever we need in order to facilitate this connection. 
And the people, just like in our Parsha, connected with Moshe, he, so to speak, had his soul reduced to a way, to a level that was appreciable by the people or that his soul was able to connect with other people to a certain extent. And God is limiting himself to a certain degree. He's coming down to us and making him approachable. And that's really the order of the day. That's the mission of the day for us to connect to our creator who is amongst us. Very advanced ideas, but certainly qualifies as an exquisite insight. And I hope you enjoyed. And I hope uh, you uh, forgive the late release of the Parsha podcast. I can promise you I was not just twiddling my thumbs this week, waiting uh, for Thursday. If I could have done it any earlier, I would have done it any earlier, I promise. But it's better late than never. And it's a good way to start 5783 with the Parsha podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day. An incredible, uplifting Shabbos. This Shabbos is called Shabbos Shuva, the Shabbos of repentance. May we all have a small little feeling, a rumbling, fluttering feeling of repentance over this Shabbos. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll gather together again for another fireside chat on next week's Parsha, Parshas Ha'azinu, in good health and in great spirits. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I look forward to our next opportunity to study Torah together from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Email address is rabbiwobi at gmail.com.